Hello? I can't deal with it, Louise. I just can't deal with any more dumb sequels. It's just some dumb movie with some dumb girls getting cut up, and I'm not paying for that. They don't even follow the rules of a good horror sequel. Anna, not all sequels suck. Name one. Name one good sequel. By definition alone, they're inferior to the original. Scream 2. Yeah, okay then. Welcome to Hello Sydney, a limited podcast series supported by Paramount that cuts deep into one of the most iconic horror franchises. Across the next few episodes, we'll be slicing and dicing our way through each movie in the Scream franchise in anticipation of the brand new Scream coming to cinemas in January 2022. I'm Louise Blaine, writer and broadcaster, and today I am joined by Mike Munzer, producer and podcaster. Hello. And Anna Bogutskaya, writer and broadcaster. Hiya. This episode, we're talking about Scream 2 from 1997. Just a reminder before we start that we are going to be spoiling everything about Scream 2 in this episode. So if you haven't seen Scream 2, do go back and watch that before you listen to this because we're about to ruin all of it. But before that breakdown starts, let's ask you both an interesting question. If there was going to be a stab version of your life, who would play you? Sarah Paulson. Interesting. Sarah Paulson can do anything. She can. She's over the top. She's funny. She's incredible. And very horror-y. Horror-y. And I I think like in, in... uh, in the stab movie version of my life, I think we've have like a similar dress sense as well. So I, I want Sarah Paulson. Wow. Okay. I love that. Also, she's obsessed with Rihanna and with Cable and Chet. So I think we connect in that sense. Terrified of clones too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There Sarah you go. Paulson trivia. Mike. <laughs> Sarah who Paulson would, fans love who would play you? Uh, Andy Samberg. Oh, oh yeah, of, course, Samberg. of course you are. <laughs> of course he would. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. People tell me quite a lot that I look like him, but also I think he would probably nail the sort of if I if if it was a movie version of me, he probably would be a bit goofy and ridiculous. I'd probably be like a quite Dewey esque character, if not Randy. So I think somebody like Andy Sandberg and his and his kind of performance would work well. That's an excellent pick. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna stay in the horror world mm-hmm. um with Taisa Farmiga. Oh my god, yes. Yes. Um who's also some- the American horror story world, I like this. Exactly. So we, we get to share a same world mm-hmm. and she's also in the final girls mm-hmm. and is amazing and just has a basically she has a much better version of my face. It's like someone has looked at my face and gone, I can fix this and then made <laughs> Tyson Farmica and they've gone, Yep, yeah, she's the better version of me. So she can be the, the stab version of me because that's the person whose sliders are fixed. So yes. Very to good. the point where one of my friends very sweetly calls her the other me. Which is lovely. Yeah. It's like horror with the other me. So there you go, the stab movie version of us. If we three were the Sydney Gale and Dewey starring three of a film, it would be Andy Sandberg, Sarah Paulson and Tysa Fominga. I'd go see that movie. Oh, I, I want to see that yeah. movie. <laughs> Make this movie now. Um, I love it. So Scream 2 from 1997. What a film. Anna, it's your turn oh, to give us a 20 second plot synopsis of Scream 2. And your time starts now. Sydney is in college. She's gone through therapy. She is dealing as best as possible with the legacy of the trauma that she's went through. But Gail Weathers has written a best-selling book about the the murders at Woodsboro, and that has been adapted into a movie called Stab, which reignites the interest in Sydney's past. And there is a new ghost face on the prowl that is again targeting Sydney. I mean, it was definitely over 20 seconds, but it was an excellent... <laughs> it was an excellent... It was an excellent synopsis all the same. There's too many things happening in this movie. There are a lot of elements to this movie, there aren't are. there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Multiple it is, layers. It's a film where a lot's going on. This came, So this came out a year, literally 12 months after the first film, didn't it? Uh, de- December 1996 was Scream 1, and then straight away they went into production with Scream 2. It came out December 1997. Louise, this is an amazing sequel to Scream, right? What What is it about this that works so well as a horror sequel, do you think? I think it's the fact that it just picks up immediately where you left off with those characters, where you feel like you know everyone, but takes it to a new location. And you can feel, even from the very beginning, you can feel yet again Kevin Williamson's script. It's just like, oh, I'm safe Mm -hmm. in the world of Kevin Williamson characters and that's 
and it's very, very confident from the get-go. You've got that cold opener, that very murderous cold opener, which we will talk about. And then you are back with, you're back with Sydney, you're back with Dewey, you're back with Randy. Yes, they're in a new place, but also it's a place you understand. Yes, we understand high school movies, but we also understand university movies because it's just like a big mm-hmm. version of high school. So it's it's not that different, but it's different enough and the stakes are higher. And I think you're just, you love those characters so much in the first one. And it just deals with them very admirably to the point where I think we all have a very similar sort of a feeling of Scream 2 that it is just exceptional. And I'd also like to say we're not having origin stories for Scream 2, but I saw Scream 2 and I remember it came out in 97 because I sneaked into the cinema. <gasps> in 1997, I bought a ticket for Titanic. Louise. I know. Oh, I was 12. And uh, it was the first night it was on. And we sat, we sneaked in and the only free seats were right down at the front, which obviously oh. is where she ends up mm-hmm. at the start of the movie. And that memory for me is just one of my favourite horror movie memories of like, now I'm in the movie. This oh, is amazing. That's beautiful. That's no so one kicked cool. us out. No one kicked us out. It was great. You mentioned that it kind of picks up and, and the characters are evolved and stuff. But it also, the thing that I, the thing that I think works so well about it is that it doesn't pretend like the events of the first movie didn't happen. It builds on them, both from a character perspective and from everything that goes on in the universe. So if in Scream 1, we knew that horror movies existed, in Scream 2, the Woodsboro murders existed, and they've now been turned into a movie and a book. And there's all sorts of things that kind of are a ripple effect from that, like the prank calls that Sydney keeps getting when we first see her kind of wake up in college. And I love the way that everything grows in this movie. I think mm-hmm. like with that, you know, the cold open in Scream 1, which was a, a girl on her own watching a, a movie at home with some popcorn, becomes in this one a movie theatre with lots of people and everything is bigger. Everything is grander. And we go from the small, quaint town and the high school to this big university campus, right? M- bigger cast. There's more carnage. And I guess that is the theme of this movie. It's something that Randy lays out in the rules of the sequel, but it's more, isn't it? More, more, more. More carnage, more gore. Everything about this film feels bigger and bloodier and uh, just even more sort of crazy fun, I think, as well. And like it's addressing its own hype. Mm-hmm. Like its first kill is in a cinema. It yes. doesn't get much more. The, the subtext is not, it's, it's more like the text. <laughs> yes. you know, it's definitely, it's just the text. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Yes. No, really, who is this? Such a great opening scene, isn't it? Because I think, you know, what this scene does so well, and actually what the rest of the film does so well, is it puts murder sequences, really gruesome, bloody murders, in places you don't expect. You know, in Scream 1, it's a lot of teenage girl on her own in a house in the middle of nowhere. But here, in Scream 2, the murders happen in big public spaces. And this is a perfect example of this, right? This woman and her boyfriend, he goes to the bathroom, gets stabbed to death in the bathroom stools. Some other man in a ghost face mask sits next to her in the auditorium. She thinks it's her boyfriend until he starts stabbing her to death. And she's in a public space. You don't expect something like this to happen. You know, she should be safe. She's surrounded by an audience Uh, fellow students but nobody notices nobody helps her as she's being stabbed to death and also it's particularly chilling because as as rowdy as the screening is of stab and and it's amazing and people have dressed up as ghostface so the fact that ghostface becomes kind of a cultural icon and that costume is being used by people who are not related to the tragedy is they're kind of mocking the killer in a way and also paying homage to him in a, in a different way. Same as, you know, horror movie nerds will dress up as, as Freddy, as Jason, as Michael Myers. It's the same thing. But in, within the story of the universe of Scream, it's kind of chilling because you're making fun of the of the tragedy of the characters that you fell in love with and are protective of from the first movie. Yeah. That had only happened one year earlier as well. These people were mocking these crimes that had happened a year ago as well. I mean, extremely realistic timeline for Hollywood to have made (laughs) someone to have written a book, published it, it becoming bestseller and it being turned into a big movie within 12 months of a massive tragedy. Go Gail Weathers, girl bossing murder. But at the same time, those shots of that audience as Jada, Jada Pinkett's 
death is happening, they kind of think that this is part of a performance. Yeah, this is fake. a gimmick. And the slow realization, those very simple shots of some people taking off the mask and kind of looking concerned, is like that initial cold open scene in Scream where we realize, oh, Casey's not going to make it. This is kind of the same thing. Not only are we seeing the death of a character, we're also seeing people realize that they're effectively not doing anything to help her. And I think that idea of as horror fans realizing that something is real is terrifying so that moment where she's standing there and she's just I mean she's she's dying in front of these people who are pulling off their their ghost face masks and looking on in horror and I think that's quite a nice and important thing to have because we feel it's it's terrifying it's scary it's savage it's happening in a cinema but it's also happening in front of people and people are reacting the way that people would so I think that's really important I think that's something Wes Craven talks about is how important horrific things happening and then people reacting as if they are horrific and that's what makes horror yes. is those, the, look, the last look in people's eyes etc as horrible as that sounds it's to make sure that violence always feels like violence and it just aces that in the introduction I think there's something again going back to this idea that this film is so much bigger but there's something really fun and theatrical about this movie do you know what I mean I kept noticing there are so many moments where people are on stage or they're in theatres or they're everything about it feels almost operatic this film and that moment when Jada Pinkett screams and holds out her arms and then like drops to her knees it really feels like you're watching some sort of Shakespeare performance or something you know it is Sydney's tragedy yes it really is Sydney's tragedy completely because it, we're not. We, we spoil as we go. This is the film where she ends up standing alone because mm. she's lost everyone. Mm-hmm. So this it's significant. The whole thing is just absolutely tragic that way. Yeah. And also from that get go, is smashing up its own rules. It's like you don't mm-hmm. have to be alone. You don't yeah. have to have a phone call. And then we do get a phone call. And we go, oh, it's Ghostface. Oh no, five five five. We've yeah. got a number here. Yes, <laughs> get exactly. off the phone. This is a this is a like it's this a is fake illegal. sense of control. Yeah. So we we have no idea where it's going to go from there. Mm-hmm. So where are our characters, our survivors, who which are Randy and Sydney, of course? So we've got Sydney and Randy who have started college. So they're in Windsor College. So Sydney's a theatre student. Randy is studying film. And then of course, when these murders happen, Dewey and Gail are brought in. Uh, you know, God knows, Gail's been off touring, being famous, being a writer and doing all sorts. Gail is living her best life. Good getting for Gail. Ca- Gail's living her implants. best life. <laughs> Dewey, I assume, has just been in Woodsboro, um, probably recuperating from a pretty serious stab wound in in his back, right? Because he, he has a sort of limp in this one yeah, as well. Yeah, and also memorising Gail's book. Yes. And all of his appearances in it. Indeed, that's right. Um, five fish presents. Yeah. So they, uh, Dwight, we should call him, not Dewey yes. as well. Uh, and my name is Dwight. Um, it's and- not better than Dewey. No, it's, it's not better. better. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all sort of brought back together, aren't they, at the beginning of the movie, off the back of these murders, um, as well as an incredible new cast of characters that were introduced to at the same time. Most of which from Urban Legend. Quite a few <laughs> from Urban Legend. Yes, exactly. Well, Randy is studying film. Obviously, yeah. Um, and we we're mostly introduced to the Newcastle characters in his film class, really, in a debate about sequels. Yeah, so we get um, we've got Sarah Michelle Gellar in there, who obviously was mid Buffy fame at that point, um, which was again when something happens to her. That's all the more galling because she's meant to be the survivor that does the roundhouse kicks and doesn't get thrown off a balcony. Mm. Um, who else do we meet in that? We meet Joshua Jackson. Yes. Yeah. Timothy oh, Oliphant. Dawson's Creek. Timothy Oliphant. I mean, actually, can we just take a moment for the the cast of this film? Right. Just like obviously. We've got our main three, four characters from the first film. And then, like we say, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Joshua Jackson, Timothy Oliphant, Jerry O'Connell, Rebecca Gayhart, Portia de Rossi, David Warner, Omar Epps, Laurie Metcalf, Jada Pinkett, Luke Wilson, Heather Graham and Tori Spelling all come into this. It's quite a cast, right? Impressive. It's amazing. And we apparently hear that Dewey's played by David Schwimmer, but we do never we never see David Schwimmer. We never see it, which of course I kind of there's a, there's a number of little little stabs at friends which are delightful. Yes. But but also we get a very quick sneak peek at Luke Wilson playing um, playing Billy with the terrible curtains. Terrible wig. Obviously on purpose. But so good. Um, do you guys have any faves of our new cast of characters? I love Portia de Rossi. <laughs> and the, just the, the, I think, the, hi. No, I mean that. 
Hi. <laughs> hello, girls. Enjoying yourselves? Oh, hello, Sister Lois. Sister Murphy. Hello, Pledge. Hi, Sydney. Like, almost kind of, like, creepy, monstrous versions of these sorority girls. There's even a shot of the two. Because they, they walk around together, Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart. Everywhere they go, they come as All a pair. Time. And there's a moment when, um, just after the attack has happened in, in a house, they look outside, a character looks outside and sees the two of them just stood in a doorway together. <laughs> and they look like the girls from The Shining in yes, that show. Yes, they do. You know? do. Um, they're brilliant, yeah. I think I think my favourite... Well, I'm torn between Debbie Salt, who obviously is Mrs. Loomis, oh Laurie Metcalf can do no wrong, but Absolutely. also just her eagerness, especially around Gail, is delightful and just how much she gets. She's like this annoying chihuahua that keeps pestering Gail and then gets swatted away and then keeps running back and <laughs> wants to impress her so much. But uh, the other one that I love is Derek, Sydney's boyfriend, played by Jerry O'Connell, because he is so basic. It is delightful. With <laughs> he is the pumpkin spice latte of men. Oh. He really is. He is. It's very with- wholesome. Oh, he's just he's not even wholesome he's just what are you doing sweetie What <laughs> with your big absolutely not those pants are way too big for you yep. they're so extremely beige <laughs> I suppose he's safe isn't he he's so, he's so safe, safe. He's... also he cannot hold a tune where oh, he gosh, does no. his big moment in the kitchen I was like <laughs> Sydney break up with this man immediately it's not just a public display of affection it's an actual musical number it's like no no that's another red flag no absolutely not <laughs> no the only man that can pull that off is he Ledger and 10 things I hate about you nobody else should try but I love the fact that Jerry, O'Con- Jerry O'Connell was like I cannot sing but I have zero sense of embarrassment because white man yeah he's great isn't he and I, I feel like obviously the story does it, again we've got a whodunit haven't we we've got a mystery and he's definitely mm-hmm. a a prime suspect, isn't he? Being that he is Sydney's boyfriend, so he's way too dumb to be a murderer. <laughs> he he is a bagel of a person. He could never commit a murder. Well, now we've got bagels too. <laughs> oh God! He's not even got any seeds on him. He's just a plain bagel. <laughs> he's a plain bagel of cream cheese. Oh. <laughs> Poor, poor, what's his name? Poor Derek. Exactly, you forgot his name. (laughs) He's so beige, you forgot him. It's delightful, though. I think he's the perfect kind of post-Billy boyfriend for Sydney. Good for her and her dealing with her issues. It must have been very difficult to have these characters that we know so well, who we obviously would like to spend more time with, but also introduce effortlessly this other cast of characters. Because otherwise you've got no one left to kill, right? If you're looking at it on a very basic horror movie level, it's like, who are we going to do? Who are we going to bring this in? So actually to bring these in, bring these characters in, make them, again, fully rounded characters that we actually care about. You know, Sydney's best friend, she's brilliant. And you're like, why are you not going to survive? Of course you're not going to survive. You're Sydney's friend. But I think, again, you've got this layer of, but they might survive. Mm-hmm. You've got this extra. And then obviously you've got the return of Cotton Weary. Yes. And that's such a huge that's another sort of blast from the past almost but fits perfectly in the world so that's why it's such a good sequel because it's taking more of what you like adding into it but not making it feel like it's jarring at all I think that's really important it's true it's a very big cast of characters actually isn't it in this one so it does increase the body count but it also increases the amount of suspects too because you really are constantly going oh it's probably going to be cotton isn't it or oh could it be could it be Derek? Could it be Mickey? Could it be somebody like Randy or Gail from the first film? You never know. Like, And again, it really kind of... it, And I think it suggests all of these things at different points in the story as well, doesn't it? In a really clever way. And Cotton is a really interesting character. Mm-hmm. And played by Lee Schreiber in this film. And he turns up again, much like Gail in the first film, much like a lot of the characters who always want something from Sydney. He wants fame. He wants money. He wants an apology from Sydney. He is a pest, but he's such an interesting one because technically she does kind of owe him an apology. She put him in jail and he was not the murderer. Mm-hmm. Is Cotton Weary a suspect? Because he does have a yeah. motive. Oh, yeah, totally. There's that scene in the library where he's oh, very yes. much presented as a suspect, right? Where Sydney is attacked by 90s internet in the library. <laughs> uh, That's where... the most 90s of sequences as well. <laughs> where they're like, all of the computers in the library are connected to one another. It's a localised network. And uh, she has a message that pops up saying, you are going to die tonight, Sydney. So she knows that somebody's messaging her that from 
from the library and then cotton pops up out of the blue right and and becomes very threatening and sort of follows her sort of she's sort of backing away from him down the stairs as he's coming after her basically trying to pressure her into doing a diane sawyer interview right and uh and he sort of loses it and, and starts shouting and yelling in the library and gets arrested so he's definitely set up as a potential suspect and and a and a, a motive that you would completely understand, right? Even before you know he's the killer, it's like, well, he's the guy that she sent to prison for a year and p- potentially ruined his life, right? So you kind of, yeah, you could kind of buy why he might be the killer. I think. I, do, yeah. I think that's what it does so effortlessly. It does that with everyone. It gives everyone a motive. Yeah. What, what's interesting as well is we manage using cotton. Gail actually manages to re-put herself in the villain scene by that very early scene where she springs a live interview, well, basically live interview yeah. between Sydney and Cotton. And suddenly you go, actually, we've got this dynamic again of Gail being awful. And it, yes. from, the end, from the end of the first one where you were like, oh, you know, we owe our lives is what Sydney says. But at the same time, they still hate her. She's still doing terrible things for her own career, which again... She has to sort of claw back by halfway through the movie to try and spend some time with her key lot. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because the characters from the first one have grown a little bit and changed a little bit, but also they haven't. So, yeah, I think there is that feeling when you first meet Gail. Oh, is she going to have turned over a new leaf now? You know, she saved their lives at the end of Scream 1. They were all in this tragic, horrific situation together. Has that kind of brought any humanity out in Gail? And then the first thing we see, she's stomping around, she's shoving cameras in Sydney's face she's you know confronting her with cotton she gets punched again by Sydney because of it it's like no she's if anything she might have become even more kind of ruthless than she was previously because she's actually achieved fame and success by this point right she's a sort of minor celebrity at this point well now she has power so when she comes in she literally cuts through the media line in in this like (laughs) extraordinary outfit and she (laughs) literally again snaps her fingers and she always gets the first question in. She feels completely empowered to kind of drag Cotton away to try to throw this interview at, at Sydney in this terrible moment. Um, so Gail now represents the media establishment. She's not just a hungry reporter now. She is the media. She's got a book. She's got a movie based on her book. She's a, she's a, ce- a celebrity journalist. Because the cameras are as pointed at her as they are at the situation which is interesting and the media plays a huge role in this sequel as well whether it's you know in the first one we do get a little bit a little bit of that here it's it's kind of the one of the main villains alongside Ghostface and of course let's not forget one of the killers turns out to be one of these journalists as well that Mm -hmm. is following them all around and is desperately kind of harassing Gale throughout the whole film and there is this motif too right where the killer in this one is actually filming everything as well. There's footage that they find at the end where the killer is running around with a with a video camera, kind of you know capturing everything live as well. So it's 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 directly linked into the actual killer in this film um, in a really interesting way. So yeah, press are psychopaths in Scream Two, basically. But it's just the extra layers, isn't it? Because now we've got the existence of Stab. We have a franchise. Yes within a franchise Mm -hmm. and I think the addition of that of understanding the cycle of violence um, the violence is committed the violence is written about and microphones are shoved under faces it becomes a documentary perhaps but it also becomes entertainment yes and suddenly the entertainment is what mainly rises to the top and we are watching we're watching the interviews with Tori Spelling about playing Sydney I mean those Mm. things the multi-layers of that so we've got all those tiers, but then at the top, we still have the horror movie that is currently happening. And I yes. think it's watching that cycle of violence. And then you've got to do the thing which all of them do. It's like, well, you're watching this. What are you doing? Yes. It's like, oh, yes, yes, I see your point. Well done. <laughs> you know, but no, <laughs> yes. that's never done in a fuck you kind of way ever. Yeah. yeah. But it's there. It's got to be there. Definitely. Yeah. And it really kind of um, predicts the, the true crime craze that we really have been living through in the last couple of years as well, where it's like this obsession with creating a, a, a multiverse based on a single crime or a single murderer. And in this case, kind of because of the nature of Ghostface that we discussed in the last episode of this being a mask that anybody can put on and become Ghostface with different motivations, the fact that Scream is always a whodunit, the motivations of Ghostface, the Ghostfaces in this film, is fame, Mm -hmm. which is completely different from the motivations of Billy and Stu. Here, when Mickey gets revealed as a killer, 
he has a motive. His motive is, I want to be a famous serial killer. And I want to blame the movies. Yes. yes. And it's just like, well, that's a double hit. Like, and he wants the trial, of, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. That entertainment factor. Yeah. So we've got, like you say, we've got Mickey, who is revealed as the first killer, who uh, is um, just another film nerd, right? He's one of Randy's classmates in film class. Yes. And he's sort of there throughout as one of the one of their group of friends, sort of a little bit tertiary, but he's always there. And, uh, Can we just, a little parenthesis? Mm. Scream 2, um, aside from us three, film nerds are never as hot. As <laughs> Timothy Oliver. No. <laughs> aside from, I'm glad you, I'm glad there was a caveat on that, Anna. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. Yeah. He's very charismatic and good looking for a film studies Everyone student. in that film studies class says, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's so but true. But even in that first uh, that classroom sequence, he just looks incredible. Yes. They all do, actually. The flick between him and then Sarah Michelle mm-hmm. Gellar. Yeah, Joshua oh Jackson. But coming back to him, just like, oh, yes. Yes. And yes. he has a deranged killer He does have the killer well. eyes. Yeah. He does. He does. So he's revealed to be the first killer. And like you say, Anna, he's basically, he doesn't really have a... He doesn't really have a personal motive towards wanting to kill Sydney or anything. He just wants to do this for fame. He wants to cash in on the on the post stab craze, and um, he's a hack. And he's a hack, and and become a, a copycat. Uh, who wants to get famous and, and have a, an O.J. Simpson-esque trial, right, that will make him a celebrity. But, of course, then it's revealed that he is partnered with Mrs. Salt, a.k.a. Mrs. Loomis, played by Laurie Metcalf. Who does have a valid motive. Very old-fashioned revenge. It's good old-fashioned revenge. Yeah. And the nice thing is, it's not vague. Mm-hmm. I think having that reflection of screams, so someone with a genuine revenge passion yes. the fact that she searched like what was it serial killer website and it turns out there's only X number of them there's only a few actually operating in the United States I got really lucky with him he is a hack she just hired him and I think what was clever as well is the fact that she was kept away from Sydney at all times because if Sydney had seen her she would have known who she was mm-hmm. so I love the fact that the cast is big enough and there's been enough characters that we've never really had to see Sydney see her or vice versa because this world that's been created this tiny microcosm of screamness no one everyone's been kind of moving around independently and she hasn't seen that so it's almost like she was the that was the best possible reveal she's like Mrs Loomis and, and that's yeah. when you know Gail's like what I would have I've seen you it's like not like this you haven't mm-hmm. so I think all those layers of it's someone from your past you know that's again that's one of those rules isn't it they come back and I think finding her with that she would have a reason to do it that's you know it is that Friday the 13th I mean, yeah, you know, it's Mrs Voorhees right? yeah, yeah it's just that it's the same again and we and you know it means that horror nerds can go ah yeah you've done that but also I didn't expect you to do that which is what Scream does and it's and it's the start of something that the the subsequent kind of um, Scream sequels would do is add in additional characters that do have a relationship so they're constantly expanding the world but in ways that make sense because it is Scream as a franchise is still very very grounded in reality it never quite kind of goes outside of you know who these characters would know it's it's adding to that backstory too that we, we we talked about in the first film that that back basically everything links in some way to maureen prescott doesn't it to sydney's yes. mother and this is going to continue growing throughout the series but there's that world of the film that took place before scream one that is being added to layer upon layer and now we know that you know now we get to know cotton and we get to know mrs loomis and these other characters that were talked about in the first film or maybe very briefly seen but um it, it's kind of adding to that backstory isn't it yeah what you were saying before about bringing in everything being connected to maureen i think what it does is it enforces the fact that scream 2 is just one of the best sequels yes. because it works logically and yeah. you know a lot, I'm not going to name any names, but so many recent horror films just jump the shark, especially when it comes to sequels. And mm-hmm. it means that people who enjoy narrative and enjoy this twisty, turny, mystery, scary, oh, it's a bit funny, that's all in really intelligent. And that's what Scream 2 has in spades, which I think so many recent remakes and reboots and sequels just can't hold a candle to because they're too tempted to go crazy and yeah. to totally mm. just veer away. Meanwhile, Scream 2 always has it keeps that narrative in it keeps it concise it keeps it tight you've got these set of characters and it's going to make sense and that's a reassuring again that confidence where you know you're going in a direction with Wes with Kevin and they're taking you on a ride that you're not going to go at the end what why and that's a huge that's a huge 
that's why I think, as we've said, Scream 2 just stands up as a solid, solid sequel. And what about the direction itself? Because, you know, this this fits, in, as we mentioned before, kind of this expands their world a little bit. It's now it, it's getting bigger. They're now in a college town. They're in a bigger city. That offers a lot more possibilities for creative direction for creative kills yes i think there's some really fun stuff it really does go bold in this film i think with some of its set pieces like we mentioned in the opening scene it's there's one scene in this film that is a classic girl on her own in the house getting phone calls and getting killed by an intruder right and that's sarah michelle geller's character cc which is an amazing Mm -hmm. set piece and that's more classic like something you'd see in scream one everything else is quite weird and different and bold so we've got a busy movie theater we've got randy getting killed in the middle of a a park almost like at this quad on campus in the middle of daytime yes an amazing sequence and and again you think we're safe here, right? It's it's the middle of the day. He's surrounded by people. Surely he'll be fine, and he's not. Uh, there's that amazing sequence where Sydney is on stage doing this kind of Greek tragedy play, and there are people in costumes, and then the killer maybe does or doesn't pop up, and we're not quite sure what to believe. You know, that's why I was going to ask you. Do you think he was Ghostface was there, or was Ghostface not there? It's it's really it really what's really good about it is that it plants the seed of doubt either way because mm-hmm. I think you could easily believe that like maybe Sydney is imagining this because how would the killer have kind of maneuvered himself on stage and how would the other kids not have seen or the director you know David Warner's character not have seen that he was up there but also when she then leaves the stage and she goes and speaks to Derek and she said what happened to Mickey I thought he was on duty today doing this and and Derek says oh we we swapped because he had to do some editing uh-huh. so it's like oh Mickey's conveniently gone does that mean that he was on stage in costume you know so they do plant some interesting seeds there I think you know well I think it's always really grounded so I never I never kind of imagined Sydney having full-on hallucinations because Mm. we're never it's never established in the Scream lore um, up until Scream 3 which we'll discuss in the next (laughs) episode that there is anything supernatural or otherworldly going on so everything that we see is always very much rooted in the reality of Scream so I think he was there simply because there's a point just at the end where Ghostface kind of turns tail as if to disappear off into the background yeah and it's just like and also I guess if you were on stage even logically not that we should think logic if you were on stage you'd be so busy doing your own part Mm -hmm. that you maybe wouldn't notice who was around you in this sort of swirling madness that it sort of becomes while David Warner looks on (laughs) like you know just him being the theatre teacher it's just every layer of horror there and it's it's really interesting that Sydney is studying theatre and as you were mentioning before there is a very distinct operatic stagey vibe to Scream 2 and we see her perform as Cassandra yes and on stage and then the the big crescendo the big end reveal of the killers is on that very same stage again and she it's it's curious that Sydney wants to be anyone but herself and she wants to exercise that trauma through performing it over and over again to put herself on that stage that is kind of the for someone who is as a character very private and and kind of wants to isolate herself from all the stuff and doesn't really want anything from anyone and want to be looked at she's putting herself on stage constantly but she's also really evolved as a final girl in a completely different way. She is she reacts to things differently. She's not as easily spooked. She's much more open, I think, about acknowledging her role in this tragedy that had happened before and in working through it. How has she changed from Scream 1 to Scream 2? There is even a reference that Mickey makes in the final act where he says that Sydney has got a Linda Hamilton thing going on. And there's, <laughs> there's a little bit... It's not as extreme as Linda Hamilton, but obviously that's a reference to Terminator and Terminator 2 and the way that Sarah Connor becomes a much stronger, physically stronger character in the second one. She's more this kind of action hero figure, which and she was more of a kind of Final Girl-esque sort of character in the first one. And I guess there is an element of that. Sydney's become tougher. She's become mm-hmm. stronger. She's not as easily spooked. Like you say, she's a little bit more ready for it. And there is this growing... What I love about Sydney that ca- continues is there's this growing, like, weariness. Like, she almost just... Like, when something happens like this, it's almost like, are you kidding me? Like, she almost... You can feel her rolling her eyes or closing her eyes and sighing and being like really again you know and uh, I kind of love that about Sydney and and yes you've got these new characters that are you know genuinely acting like 
characters in the first film like terrified by what's going on around them like Sarah Michelle Gellar's character or whatever but there's something more there's a bit of experience there's a bit of weariness to Sydney in this movie which I really like without seeing this again yes you know without mm-hmm. seeing that although in the apart from the well they always come back you know that kind of thing yes but I think there's definitely a she has learned Mm-hmm. everything she knows that she's progressing she has learned from the first she doesn't trust she's trying to learn to trust but why would you trust if everyone that you met was like actually no murder that's fun um but i think she i think because she's been through the first movie and is not making again she's not making the mistakes that horror characters would make mm-hmm. that's the natural thing for her although that ends up with her in terrible a, a terrible lonely place by the end really and, and yeah. you're right because she does at the end of the first movie at least she survives with randy randy survives with her but this time round, it's it's just her yep. it's just her alone yeah. it's because as far as we know dewey has been well he's been taken off on a stretcher yes. right yeah. um she's not particularly close with gail so yeah she's very happy to just go off on her own isn't she at the end yeah. of that film yeah but, it, but even kind of within that that trio of the the constant protagonists of scream dewey and gail are always kind of paired off together because they're they become a couple they're the they're the the romantic um storyline of the of the films but sydney is always on her own yeah I th- I'd never noticed that as much mm-hmm. until yeah. i rewatched it for that recently and it was like that zoom out of her and that quad just alone and it's like that's but also that's sort of what she wanted like it's a sort of happy ending for Sydney mm. I mean not in the way that she doesn't obviously she's lost a lot of her friends but also she she did just want to be left alone she particularly did. by the press and yeah. people like that you know but it is also devastating to to think of Sydney having to see all her friends and her boyfriend die in front of her especially once it's really established that Derek is not the villain not the killer it's kind of heartbreaking for her, you know, her first boyfriend, serial murderer, second one, dies in front of her at the hands of someone else. Yeah. After and- her best pal has just died, thanks genuinely to her, which is a mm. scene I guess we kind of want to break down because it's magnificent and scary. Oh, Honestly, there are so many set pieces in this film I want it's to so- discuss. Them. Is it safe to say there are three absolutely magnificent, four absolutely <laughs> magnificent set pieces? Let me see if I could guess which ones you're talking Go about. On. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Cece? No. Oh, okay. You're talking about Sydney and Hallie in the car. Yes. Gail and Dewey in the soundproof studio. Yes. Randy's death. Yes. And the theatre section. Yes. Yeah. But I yeah. mean I mean, some movies now don't even get one of those. <laughs> we got four. Let's get into the set pieces. Yeah. Especially look, shall we start with the one with Hallie and, and Sydney in the car? The car chase. Oh my god. It's just exquisite isn't it it might be one of my favorite scenes in the entire scream franchise right and this is where they sydney and hallie are in the back of a cop car the killer attacks them they crash the car the cops in the front die and sydney and hallie are trapped in the back seat of this car the killer has been knocked unconscious in the crash and they have to quietly and as quickly as possible crawl over ghost faces potentially unconscious body but they don't know if he's unconscious in order to get out of the car louise you're rubbing your brow I'm right now like you're stressed, stressed. i'm genuinely <laughs> stressed remembering i am stressed thinking about it simply because not only you think they're being taken to safety and i think that's the power of this mm-hmm. scene if you think they're being taken to safety you've got two cops both with guns yeah they're in the back of the car everything's fine everything's safe but you have one ghost face with a knife who then careens the car off the road kills both the cops and then all of a sudden yet again you have two young women in the back of a car trying to sneak through the front I mean it's just these multiple layers of I don't think my heart can take this <sighs> and at one point as it Sydney elbows the car horn oh. that, that jump scare is just unbearable it's just unbearable <laughs> It's just beautiful tension. It's perfect. It's perfect. Everything about it, even the way that it, the killer doesn't wake up or come to mm-hmm. life, they do manage to get all the way out of the car at excruciatingly slow speed. You can't breathe during that you entire can't. sequence. I'm, I'm thinking about it now. You fully expect Ghostface to wake up at that point. He yeah. should. He should wake up. Meanwhile, and there really is a feeling like they're in sort of separate films almost, right? But mm. but almost at the same time as this, you've got Gail and Dewey being attacked by another ghost face in the soundproof studio room, which is Mrs. Loomis. That's oh, definitely Mrs. Loomis. Yes. So, yeah. That scene as well is <sighs> brutal. I loved it. Again, like like you said, Anna, the way that the, 
the direction, the way that Wes Craven uses these sets on campus, he uses theatre space, he uses media kind of, you know, different types of media in their spaces and recording studios and sound booths and, you know, all of this kind of thing. It's so cleverly done. The fact that we're recording this in a in a recording studio. Yeah, exactly. Is giving me chills. But it's true. Yeah, as soon as we walked into it. this studio and I saw the soundproof glass, we were like, yeah, this is like Scream 2, right? Too. Yeah. But I think what, talking about those spaces, I do think Scream characters exist in a very interesting world. Mm-hmm. Of interconnected rooms. From this, <laughs> mm. you, they can always keep going. Like in that scene, yes. Gail is going through. It's like when James Wan directs things like Everything Looks Like the Amityville Horror. <laughs> Wes Craven makes Scream look like a series of interconnected. Because you can always leave. Yes. Very rarely does a character find themselves in a room that they can't remove end. themselves mm. from. It's they so can. true. So again, so that make, takes advantage of that as, as Gail Weathers is casually going like very quietly creeping through and shutting doors and locking doors and finding that doors don't have locks and yes. swearing. You know, it's it's that constant motion where we're not very sure where everyone is either. So the minute you take sound into that, mm. it just takes this whole new level of, of scares. And also that is particularly... Uh, that is a particularly brutal kill because well it's an almost kill because Dewey does survive but we are led to believe that he that he won't yes and Scream is has already at this point I think killed Randy so we do know that our beloved characters from the first film can be killed in this one but it's also because Gail as the most you know technically heartless or the most ruthless character the one who is trying to capture all this violence she's now forced to watch it and she can't do anything because mm-hmm. she'd be putting herself in peril and she's forced to watch the most innocent character you know her say romantic interest as well be savagely killed in front of her very very face so up close to it as well it's a really it's a really stark moment where it's she amazing. really feels the pain that she's been profiting off and the way Wes Craven sort of plays with sound in that because yeah. we're, we're first of all we're in the room with Gail and she can't hear Dewey screaming and being killed on the other side then when she turns around and sees it we go to the other side of the glass and we can't hear her screaming and sobbing and calling out his name and yeah you're right she, for such a cold character seeing her and Courtney Cox is obviously so good but like seeing her break down and start crying and look vulnerable for the first time really mm, in the yes. franchise so far it's a really heartbreaking moment isn't it on top of everything else yeah absolutely so I guess we should finish by mentioning that final act shouldn't we and the killers reveal we've talked a little bit about who they are and their motives but um how did you find that that scene played out with the killers being revealed, revealing their motives, that final showdown with Sydney? How was this bigger and something different than what we had seen in the kitchen in Scream 1, for example? It literally takes it from the kitchen to the stage. Yeah. There's several big reveals. There's the big reveal of Mickey, the killer, and we're kind of led to assume that, oh, well, you know, there was two killers in the first one. Surely they won't do two killers in the second one again. So Mickey makes sense. And also he has a serial killer crazy eyes. And then it's Mrs. Loomis. Mm. Who also has the serial killer craziness. <laughs> yeah, she does. Does she ever? Oh she they're amazing. The entire white around her eyes in that scene. <laughs> it's incredible. I love that re- I love that reveal. But then I also, just a little bit later on, after we've had sort of desperate fighting, I love that kind of, it's really violent. It's not terribly slick. It's scrappy. It, mm-hmm. ah, it's, it's, scrappy. it's panicked and there's a gun rolling around and yes. suddenly... You realise how difficult... I mean, Ghostface is just stabbing people previously, but there was kind of an art to that. But now there's a brawl, and mm. Sydney is not giving up easily, and she's slashing with the little letters, which obviously were Chekhov's necklace earlier yeah. to, be used, as, to <laughs> yeah. be used as violence. And I, I love that, because it suddenly makes it all to play for, and, and Sydney kind of, again, learning from the first movie as progressing into horrible violence to, to desperately try and survive and then you've got Cotton rocks up oh my god yeah Cotton who saves the day I guess kind of doesn't he or at least sort of partly helps to save the day I refuse to make Cotton Weiro a hero yeah I mean he's not but um, there Cotton is Cotton Weiro <laughs> there's also what I love again and we keep talking about it with this one but that theatricality of this there's this amazing moment when Sydney like manages to sort of escape Mrs Loomis backstage and in order to sort of mess with her <laughs> She just starts, like, causing havoc on stage, like creating thunder and lightning effects um, and sort of using an axe to cut all these, like, ropes that are holding up lights so all the lights are falling, crashing down around her on the stage. Again, it's so operatic. It's so over the top. There's no need for her to actually start making thunder and lightning effects, but no. it's, it's brilliant that it it's happens. It's like she's trying to spook her. It's, it's like, all right, 
all right, theatre student. Yeah, we get it. But <laughs> it's so it's, I love it so much. And now it's time for the Screamies, the quick fire round where we discuss some of our favourite moments in the movie. And we may have also made up a little Screamy statue with the face of Ghostface. It's adorable. So what is the scariest moment for you guys from the film? Oh, God. There's so like we talked about, there are so many good ones, but it's hard to argue with the crawling out of the cop car, isn't it? Yep. I yep. Think. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Pretty, pretty flawless and terrifying. Yeah. That's terrifying. And now, what about the best kill, though? You know, the most imaginative one that we hadn't seen anything, and we haven't even said anything, was um, Jada Pinkett's boyfriend <laughs> and at the start. <laughs> that was going to be mine. Oh, my reps. Yeah, yeah, because we we hadn't seen anything like that. We did not expect that to happen. That was another rule break mm-hmm. of, oh, I'll just listen. And who was it on the other side? Was it Billy's mother? It's Mickey. It's, it's Mickey. Mickey. Do you know what? You can actually, if you turn up the volume, hear Mickey's voice. So he's. Yes. You know that there's a there's a kind of weird giggling, whispering noise yeah. on the other side of that cubicle, and Omar Epps' character puts his his head to it to listen. You can hear Mickey, and what he's doing is he's he's quoting Black Christmas. Yes. He's being Billy from Black Christmas. He's going, Agnes, it's me, Billy. And he's like, he's he's because mumbling. I just heard Billy, and I was like, who's talking about Billy? Why yeah. Billy? It's right. a little Black Christmas reference, it isn't is. it? It is. That's a good kill. And also, I'd shout out Randy's kill as well, because oh, as well as it being savage. quite heartbreaking, I actually love the way that that's executed with him being pulled into that van, the door slamming shut, people walk past with this like noisy ghetto blaster, and you don't really see it or hear it, right? You just hear the struggle in the van, and then his body with all the sort of cuts and blood all over his face is, is brutal. Yeah. It's a particularly brutal kill. Yeah, yeah. And and kind of on that note, who in and adding a new category because to the sequel, who's the best new character introduced in Scream Two? Cece. Oh, I really like her. Yeah. I think I like again how we feel like we're introduced to this world of, and she talks about how she's the sober sister, and we know her boyfriend's name, and that he drinks, and we know what she's like, and mm-hmm. we know her friendships with people, and it does already feel like she belongs in that world. Mm-hmm. So I mean. I also love her because she is also Buffy. But at the same time, I, I've always felt that I really loved that that miniature, just as you said, it's the traditional Scream experience yes. that just takes place in a sorority house. And I just love that whole section. So she's my my new car- favourite character. Best cameo? I, I would maybe say Luke Wilson as Billy in Stab <laughs> because of his stupid hair and his little stupid that he does. It's perfect. Um, which, by the way... How did anyone know like, that that, that moment was, happened? That was my question too. I was like, how yeah. did... Oh, that's only slightly rearranged what actually happened. Yes. She didn't ask him if his brain was leaking mud, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, it's almost an exact transcript of her conversation yeah. with Billy. And mm-hmm. I kept thinking, would Sydney really have sort of told Gail in detail this? what their personal conversation was? But anyway, we won't overthink that. But uh, love Luke Wilson. Yeah. What about you? I think it has to be Tori Spelling. Yes. It has <laughs> yeah. to be Tori Spelling. Yep. Because of the the kind of the inside reference, and also because even if you didn't catch that in the first film, um, it it just makes it's funny because of the moment in time when this is happening. Because story spelling was a big thing at that point. Uh, what's your favorite Sydney moment in this? I think it has to be the moment when um, when she picks up the phone for the first time, and she sees who's calling and she just breaks him down and she's yawning she's just woken up you can tell just through the through Nev Campbell's performance in that scene that she's gone through this so many times she's got a system it doesn't phase her it doesn't even annoy her anymore she's just bored <laughs> yeah so perfect it's so perfect and that's literally how we're introduced to her in Scream 2 isn't it as well that's the first we see of her yeah so good uh, favourite Gail and Dewey moment it kind of has to be when he almost gets killed I know it's a really dark moment, but also it's a really beautiful moment because you can see just how much she does care about him in that scene. Mm-hmm. So, and also the him reciting hit her book. Yes, that's a her. great moment. That's, that's wonderful. That's because he's moment. so hurt that yeah. she would be so mean to him in in print. I'll, ma- I'll mention hard. the moment when they nearly have sex at the front of a lecture theatre as well. Yeah. Um, and then they're interrupted by Ghostface. With his hand. Just yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a very much a callback, isn't it? Yes. To the is that what you're looking for? My whole life in the woods in the first one. Yeah, so good. Um, and what is your guys' favorite horror nod? Kill, 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 kill. Yes. Oh yes. 
because I think it's that Selma Blair on the end of that phone. I remember. I think I. I, I think, think it might be. I, I feel like that's that's a thing. So the fact that even that's coming from Selma Bloody Blair mm-hmm. of Cruel Intentions, Sir Michelle Gellar, Kiss fame. Um, but yeah, that's just great because it's the fact the the film's scoring itself at that point. And what about you? I kind of have to go with the Black Christmas one mm. because it's so small and so obscure, and it kind of. I, it, I like the fact that it kind of requires you not just to recognise it from Black Christmas, but also that you kind of have to lean in. Yes. You I've, have n- to I've never, I, I honestly admit, I've never been able to hear it. It's like a little Easter egg. You will notice it with subtitles. If you put the subtitles on mm-hmm. um, during watching the film, because it will pop up and you're like, oh, what? What? <laughs> yeah, I should yeah. have done that. That's the that's the, that's the the secret. I never turned on the subtitles because I just thought it was whispering about Billy Loomis, which it's not. Love it. So we ended last episode with predictions for Scream 2022. So let's continue this trend. Let's not break our own rules. Uh, obviously, in Scream 2, we saw important character, well, important characters like Randy, die. So do we think that's going to happen in this one? And if so, Sydney, Dewey, Gail, who's going to bite it? I have a feeling that Dewey might not survive Scream 2022. Mm. Uh, there's something about, and again, this is like, if you look at the trailer, this is going full nerd, but in the trailer, Dewey is very much isolated. He talks to other characters on the phone, and you see him talking to some of the new cast members, but you never see him in a scene with Gail and Sydney. And Gail and Sydney are together, and Dewey is not there. And I worry that is he going to be like a first act or second act kill, you know, at some point in the film. And in one of the trailers, and I can't remember if it's the trailer or the companion feature it, we see a clip of Gail distraught screaming, like properly screaming, like actual terror. And maybe the only person that can make her do that would be Dewey. Yeah. Oh, I've just made myself so sad (laughs) I don't want it I'm going to say it's going to be Sydney just because I I want to manifest it not being Dewey could you imagine though I actually can I think that's how it ends ends I think narratively it would be such a powerful ending because as we've been discussing over the last two episodes Scream is Sydney she's always survived and she suffered so much she was suffering even before the events of the first movie so to ended with her is truly uh, the nail in the coffin of Scream. Mm. And it would be bold. It would be extremely bold. What would also need to be the case is that the character that does, the characters that do survive would need to be people we'd really want to survive. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't have the entire old guard die. And no. Because we wouldn't, I don't think any of us would stand. Or just, <laughs> what do you mean you've we killed them riot. all? We yeah. This has been it for the second episode of Hello, Sydney. Join us next week for our discussion about the Hollywood shriekwall Scream 3. Hello, Sydney. Welcome to the final act. Before we go, where can people find you and more of your work, Anna? You can find all of my work online on Twitter. I am at Anna B. Demented and I post all the links to my writing over there. I also host the weekly horror podcast, The Final Girl, so you can find it everywhere where podcasts usually are found and you can also listen to me on Wittertainment I pop up there quite a lot on BBC Five Live and I try to remember to post all the things that I write that I that I appear on on my Twitter so that is the safest place to follow me what about you Mike? Uh, yeah I host a weekly horror film discussion podcast called The Evolution of Horror you can find that all the places where you get your podcasts and you can follow us on Twitter at EvolutionPod as for me, you can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon. I occasionally haunt the Evolution of Horror podcast with Mike and occasionally Final Girls with Anna. But you can find me on BBC Radio 3 every month presenting Sound of Gaming as we go through gaming soundtracks. And you'll also find writing about horror, uh, films and games on Games Radar and NME. But yes, that's Twitter at shiny underscore demon. Hello Sydney is produced by Mike Munzer and Anna Bogutskaya for Paramount Pictures. The show is hosted by Louise Blaine, Anna Bogutskaya and Mike Munzer and it's edited by Mike Munzer. Celebrate the 25th anniversary of Scream in 4K, available to download and keep on Apple.
Scream 2 from 1997 is directed by Wes Craven and was produced by Dimension Films, Conrad Pictures, Craven Medellina Films, Miramax and Maven Entertainment.